everybody. If you got your Bibles and you want to follow along, turn with me to Romans chapter 9. And I would encourage you to open your Bible and follow along. Um, we are, of course, uh, in Genesis chapter 25. And, and, and last week, um, we, we talked a little bit about... Um, God making choices, right? Uh, we all make choices every day, don't we? And you don't really think about it a lot, but it's very seldom when you make a choice do you flip a coin. Something influences your choice. You may, you may choose based on your mood. You may choose based on your values. You may make a choice based on your priorities. You may make a choice uh, based on your budget. Are you fine? I just built a chicken coop. And if you go look at my chicken coop and say, why would you build it that way? Because I'm cheap. I want to save money. That's why I built it that way. I built it out of scraps, right? I mean, there's, there's always something behind our choices. Well, God makes choices. He chose Abraham instead of Lot. He chose uh, uh, Sarah instead of Hagar. He chose Ishmael, I mean, Isaac instead of, instead of Ishmael. So what is behind God's choices? What influences him? Is he just flipping coins, or is there something that, that influences him? Now, last week, we read in Genesis 25... These verses here, verses 22 to 23, it says, the, the children struggled within her, talking about Rebekah. So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two people from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the, the younger. Now, two questions rose up from this. First of all, is this just a prediction, or is God choosing one boy over the other? And if He is choosing then what is it that's influencing God's choice? Why would he choose Jacob over, uh, over um, uh, Esau? Now, here's where we have to be careful, because to be quite honest with you, Genesis 25 doesn't really give us any more information. And so if we didn't have any other information, we might... You remember last week I, I, I gave you guys a warning, and I said, if you don't have right knowledge about God, if nobody ever teaches you who God is and what He's like, that leaves a void, right, or a vacuum, and you'll fill that with your own truth, right? You'll just, you'll fill it. You'll come up with ideas from, from movies or books or what grandmama says. You'll just, you'll build your own theology, and we don't want to do that, right? We don't want to come to our own conclusions. And if we were left to do that, we might think, well, you know, I bet what God did is God looked into the future, and, and He looked out in the future, and he said, well, I know, I know that Esau, he's going he's gonna to despise his birthright, and I know Jacob, he's going to value the birthright, therefore I choose Jacob, right? You might think that, and that sounds logical, that sounds like something that, you know, maybe that's the way it all worked, and if we didn't have any other information, that's probably the best that we could do. But thankfully, we are not left to guess whether this thing in the Genesis 25 is a prediction or a choice. And if it is a choice, why did God choose the way he did? We are not left to deduce or conclude or infer or surmise or any of those kind of things because we have Romans 9. And in Romans 9, Paul will explain, explain exactly what was behind God's choice of Jacob over Esau. Now, last week, I, asked, I gave you some homework. Didn't I ask you to read Romans 8 and 9? How many... How many did that? Very good. Now, you may say, well, why did you ask us to read Romans 8? Well, Romans 8 is filled with assurances for the believer. What a chapter. 
I mean, if there's, I said it before, if it's not the, the greatest chapter in the Bible, it's one of the top five. It is unbelievable. These are some of the things we learn about ourselves and our relationship with God just from Romans 8. We learn that there, there is now no condemnation for us in Christ Jesus, right? We learn that we are adopted, that we are children of God, that we are joint heirs with Christ. We learn that all things work together for our good. We, we learn that we are predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. We learn that we are called. We learn that we are justified. We, we learn that we will be glorified. We learn that if God is for us, who can be against us? We learn that who can bring a charge against us? We are God's elect, God's chosen. And then, of course, one of the greatest passages in the Bible ends that chapter where Paul says, I, I am sure that neither life nor death nor any other thing that's ever been or ever will be can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. What a chapter, right? It is unbelievable when you read that chapter. In fact, you can just feel it building to a crescendo as you get to the end of that chapter. And then you turn the page to Romans 9 and the tone changes completely. It is a drastic change from Romans 8 to Romans 9. And there's a reason for that. Because Paul knows he's got a big problem that he needs to explain. And here's Paul's problem. God gave those same promises to Israel. God gave those same assurances we just read. God gave those same promises to Israel. Israel was loved. Israel was called. Israel was chosen. In Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 7-9, it says this, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. So, so they're called, they're chosen, they're, you know, all those things that we are, they were. And, and I can see even as Paul is writing chapter 8, he's thinking, well, what about Israel? See, he spent the first eight chapters of, of Romans, if you go back and read Romans, the first eight chapters he spent telling us that a relationship with God is not about rituals and, and washings and sacrifices or, or, or works or your ethnicity or your nationality. It's about what? It's about faith. Romans 3, Romans 6, faith, faith, faith. And if you try and depend on those other things for a relationship with God, you will be lost. You will be accursed. You will be cut off from God. So where does that leave the people of Israel? Where does it leave the Jews who are God's chosen people? You see, what is at stake in Romans 9, whether you realize it or not, are the reliability of the promises in Romans 8. Because if He didn't keep His promises to the Jews, how can we ever be sure He'll keep them for us? That's the problem that, 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 uh, that is facing Paul. Now listen, when you open Romans 9, there are some huge issues in there. I'm talking about serious, weighty things. Divine election, God's sovereignty, uh, human responsibility, the justice of God. I mean, monstrous theological issues are in Romans 9. But they're not there just for their own sake. They're not, Paul's not like, you know, I just think I'll throw out a few of these big issues and let's talk about them. That's not why they're there. They're there to answer the question, are God's promises reliable? Will He really work things for our good? Will He really justify us and glorify us? Will nothing really separate us from the love of Christ? Can we count on these things? You see, what is at stake in Romans 9 is the promises of Romans 8. And that's why I ask you to read that. Now, 
If you got your Bibles, Paul is going to lay out the problem in Romans 9. We'll look at verses 2 through 3. Paul's writing this letter, and he just comes out of 8, and he says this, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers and sisters and my kinsmen according to the flesh. I, I can see Paul, he's writing chapter 8, and he's saying, man, nothing can separate us. Who can bring a charge? And even as he's writing it, he's thinking about Israel. He's thinking about the Jews. They're lost. They're cut off from Christ. They're not believing. And he's, as he's thinking about it, I mean, it's just on his, his heart is getting, even as, even as he's writing these great things, his heart's getting heavier and heavier and heavier. So he turns to chapter 9. He says, man, I got anguish in my heart. And the cause of his anguish, as I said, is that his people, the Jews, they're lost. They're not believing in Christ. The Gentiles are coming, coming to Jesus in droves and the, and the, and the Jews are not. And, 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 and that just bothers Paul. Now, why are the Jews lost? Well, Paul will tell us later in the chapter, Romans 9, 31 to 32, he says this, Israel pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, but they did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. In Romans 10, 3 through 4, it says this, For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The Bible tells us the law was a tutor. It had all these rules to show you that you couldn't do it. That was the whole point of the Old Testament. You can never be perfect. You will always sin. Therefore, they were supposed to look for a Messiah, a Redeemer, who would provide that righteousness for them. And they said, nah, we don't need that Christ cross stuff. We'll just, we'll just stick with this law. We'll just keep... Everybody with me? That was their problem. That's what Paul said. They, 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 did, they missed the whole point of the law, and they decided that the law would be their righteousness. So they, they've missed the meaning of the law, which was supposed to lead them to Christ. Christ was supposed to be their righteousness, but instead they said, you know what, we'll just stick with these works thing. Now, Paul, in the next verses, he says the problem's even worse than that. Verses 4 and 5. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. I mean, this is the problem Paul's got. They are God's chosen people. They are given unparalleled privileges. Nobody, No other people have ever been given the things they've been given, and yet at the end of the day, they are lost. They are accursed. They are cut off from Jesus Christ. How can that be if God is faithful? How can that be? That is a huge problem facing Paul. And that brings us to verse 6. This is the problem that Paul is facing in Romans 9. Has the Word of God failed? In other words, when he says the Word of God, the promises to Israel, the assurances to Israel, have they failed? That is a monstrous problem facing him. And he answers this in verse 6. It is not as though the Word of God has failed. So what he says is no. No, it, it hasn't failed. Now, you can't just say that, Paul. You've got to prove it. You can't just say that and move on. You've got to prove it. So in order to prove it, he's going to give two Old Testament illustrations. And what he wants to show is that God has always been choosing 
some descendants of Israel and not choosing others. Okay? This is what he's trying to show. That if you, if you lump all of Israel into one group, he's trying to show, no, you can't do that. God has always been choosing some and not others. Now, the first example he's going to use is Ishmael and Isaac. Look at verses 6 and 7. It is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And he, he, he references or is Genesis 21, 12. In other words, Paul is saying not everybody is a Jew, or not every Jew is a child of Abraham just because they're born of his lineage, just because they share his DNA. And, and he uses Ishmael as an example. Ishmael was a physical child of Abraham. Not only that, he was the oldest son, right? Yet God did not choose him. God chose Isaac to be heir of the promises. Now, listen to me. If you got your Bibles, make sure you look at the next verses because Paul don't, does not want you to misunderstand something here. He is not talking about physical children. He is not talking about Abraham's familial lineages. That's not what he's talking about at all. In fact, he makes that clear in verse 8. And this is the key verse. Paul says, this means. Say that with me. This means. What is Paul doing? He's saying, that example I gave you, this is what I mean by it. It is not the children of the flesh who are the children of who? God. But the children of the promise are counted as offspring of God. See, he says, I'm not, oh, I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about choosing people to be the lineage of Abraham. That's not what I'm talking about. Paul says, I'm saying it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. I'm talking about people becoming children of God. That is the key verse. And Paul says, I want to make sure you understand this. This means this. Okay? Now. So what is a child of promise then that Paul is talking about? Well, a child of promise is an heir of God's promises. A child of promise is an offspring of God, a child of God, a believer, a Christian. Everybody with me? I mean, that's what Paul's saying. That's what I'm talking about. Now, whether you know it or not, we just stepped off into some deep waters. Really deep waters. Because we're not talking about DNA anymore. We're talking about children of God, spiritual children of God. And that's what Paul goes out of his way to make sure we understand he's talking about that. Now, whether we understand it or not, Paul has just introduced us to something that we know today as the doctrine of election. And doctrine just means teaching. And basically, the doctrine of election is a nutshell, is this. God chooses his children. God chooses His children. He chooses us before we ever come to the point where we choose Him. Now, Paul is going to add another insight, which is going to take us a little bit deeper. You can just imagine we're sitting there in the shallow and we're wading out a little bit deeper. Now he adds another insight, Romans 9, 9, 9. For this is what the promise said. That, by the way, that word for means because. Because this is what the word promise said, about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Now, do you remember the context of that quote when we studied it? Abraham and Sarah try to bring about their own child of promise, don't they? Sarah says, hey, go into Hagar, and he does, and Ishmael is born. And Ishmael is what Paul would call a child of the flesh. His existence and his position is owing to what man can do. 
right? And, and Abraham loves Ishmael. He wants Ishmael to be the child of promise. He says, God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God says, no, no. And then in Genesis 18.10, he says, I will return about this time next year and Sarah will have a child. You see, what Paul wants us to see is God is not just choosing the child of, of, of God or the child of promise. He's creating the child of promise. See, God's promises are not just predictions of what's going to happen. That, that, that might happen with our help. God's promises are declarations of what He will make happen. I'll come back in a year and she'll have a child. So, so not only did God choose Isaac to be the child of promise. Listen, I was thinking about this week. He did it in a way that he had to create. Not only did, were Abraham and Sarah barren, right? But he waited till they were past the age of child. He doubled up on himself, didn't he? Not only were they barren, he waited till they were too old to have children. So it was like impossible for them to have children. And then God says, now you're going to have a baby. Because now it's me. It's not you producing a bunch of Ishmaels. It's me. I'm doing this thing. I create the child of promise. Now, the birth of Isaac is, by the way, is a picture of how every child of God comes into being, including me and you. John 1, 12 through 13 says this, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You can't make children of God come into being. can't make it happen. God has to do it. God has to create them. And that's what he's saying here. Now, we should be able to see Paul's argument. Remember, what's the question he's asking? Has the word of God failed? Has all the promises to Israel, has the word of God failed? He says, no. Those promises weren't to Israel as a whole. They were to the chosen ones, to the children of God that he chose. So not all Jews are children of God, only the ones God has chosen. And to the chosen, the promises remain true. Therefore, the word of God has not failed. Now, Paul could have stopped there, but he doesn't. He's going to take one more step out. We were up to our knees, now we're at our waist, now we're up here, okay? He's got one other argument to show or to make in order for us to see that God is choosing some descendants of Israel to be children of God, and He's not choosing others, okay? And that is the argument from Genesis 25, which brings us to where we are today, right? Because we're in, we're in Genesis 25. Now, I want you to notice very carefully what Paul is doing when he chooses the story of Jacob and Esau. He chooses Genesis 25 because it is a more compelling argument than even Isaac and Ishmael. It's more compelling. Now, you may say, well, why is Esau, Esau and Jacob more compelling than Isaac and, and Ishmael? Here's why. You see, there's something about us. We always want to have a reason for why God does what he does. We always have to have a reason. So let's take Isaac and Ishmael. And, and, and Paul just said, oh yeah, he chose Isaac and not Ishmael. Some people would raise their hand and say, oh, 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 Paul. By the way, Paul, what he's writing here, he's preached thousands of times in synagogues all over the world. He's heard every complaint. He's heard every question. He's heard every reason. He, he knows what people say. And somebody raised their hand and said, Paul, Paul, you're wrong. The reason God chose Isaac it's because Ishmael was a half-breed. 
You see, the problem was Ishmael, Isaac came from Abraham and Sarah. But Ishmael, his mama was an Egyptian Gentile. So even though he came from Abraham, only half of his blood is pure. That's why God chose Isaac. By the way, Abraham's heard that a million, I mean, uh, Paul's heard that a million times. Paul says, no, 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 you missed the point. If you really think that, you missed the point. So let me clarify that with an example of Esau and Jacob. Look at verse 10. This is what he's doing. He's getting rid of that argument. And not only that, Paul says, but when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. Now, what is he saying here? You see, unlike Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau are twins. They share the same womb. They share the same mama. They share the same daddy. They share the same blood. They share the same DNA. See, he's getting rid of that argument. You know, you can't look at that. It's got nothing to do with that. See what Paul's doing? He's systematically stripping away any human differences that would force God to choose one over the other. In other words, what he's trying to get us to is to see that God's choosing is unconditional. That's where he's going in this chapter. He wants us to see it's, it's got nothing to do with any of that. It's unconditional. Just in case, though... I just love Paul. Paul's like a lawyer, man. He just he just dismantles all your, your problems and your questions, and he just takes them apart. And he will do that throughout this chapter. Just in case we missed his point, look at verses 11 and 12. Same mama, same daddy, same DNA, same blood, twins in the same womb. And then he says this, Though they were not yet born, and they had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election, that word means choosing, might continue, not because of works, because of him who calls. Paul says he chose Jacob over Esau in the womb before they had done anything good or anything bad. And you might say, oh, I know why that might be true, but he looked out in the future and he saw, no, Paul says, look, so that God's purpose of election might continue. What is God's purpose of election? Let me tell you, I don't really know, but I can tell you what it's not. It's not based on works. That's not. That's, I, I don't know what God's thinking. I can't go that far, but I can tell you what Paul says. Whatever choice he made is not because of works, but because of Him who calls. His purposes are in Him. His purposes are, are his thinking and his reasoning are inside of him, and we got no clue. But Paul says, I can tell you what it's got nothing to do with. It's got nothing to do with that boy's works, Jacob or Esau, neither one of them. Okay? Everybody see that? And by the way, he tells us she was told the older will serve the younger. In other words, this isn't a prediction. God is saying this is what going, I'm going to make happen because I choose Jacob. So God's choosing of Jacob over Esau was not because of their disposition. It was not because of their behavior. It was not because of their, their attitude. It was not because of their family. And by the way, it wasn't because of their faith, because they didn't have any. They're sitting in the womb. They're not even born yet. His choice is unconditional. That's the point Paul is trying to get across to us. You see, God never intended that every Israelite would be guaranteed salvation. That was never his intention. The promise was that God is going to see to it that the true Israel 
And by the true Israel, we mean children of God. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, God would see it that they were brought into being and saved. And the promises would always be uh, valid for the true Israel. That's Paul's entire argument. Now, just in case we still don't get it, Paul's got one more slap in the face. And that's what I call this. It is an absolute slap in the face. It's, a, it's something that I wish was not there. Remember I've said I'm gonna, somewhat, someday I'm going to preach the five things I wish weren't in Scripture? This would be one of them. This would be one of them because it just, it's, God basically is just sitting there saying, son, I'm going to do what I want to do and it's really none of your business. That's really what he's saying. I'm God and you're not. And if we can't see all of this, all of this argument, Paul adds one more little simple thing. Verse 13, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And he quotes Malachi chapter 1. Now let me read that. This is Malachi 1, 2 through 3. I have loved you, says the Lord. Okay? But you say... Now, by the way, he's talking to Israel as a nation. I have loved you. But you say, how have you loved us? And this is God's answer to that. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. Now, how many of you does this make uncomfortable? Let's just be really honest. Of course it does. By the way, you should feel uncomfortable. That's the reason that Paul put it out there. He knew what this would do. Now, the first thing you've got to see about that passage, it really is about two nations. It's about the nation of Israel, and it's about the nation of Edom, which is the Edomites come from Esau. Israel comes from Jacob. Edomites come from, from Esau. And it, and it really is about these two nations. And, and so that's, that's clear right up front. So, so here's Paul writing several hundred years later, and he looks back at that scripture and he says, well, there's an argument I'm going to use to show that God is, is choosing individual people while not choosing others. I'm going to use this argument. And he reaches back into Malachi and he pulls out this quote. So what is it about this quote that Paul feels like, man, this is, this is the right quote to use? This is the right argument to use. Well, the reason is because God does exactly the same thing. You see, the nation of Israel asks God, how have you loved us as a nation? And God's answer says, look at Esau and Jacob. Look at those two people. Look at those two boys. In other words, what God is saying here is, didn't Esau have just as much right to be chosen as Jacob? Didn't he? Aren't they in the same womb? Don't they have the same mother and father? Don't they share the same DNA? In fact, Esau is actually the older brother. He says, nevertheless, I chose Jacob. And what he's saying to Israel is, I chose you. Edom had just as much right to be chosen, but I just picked you. See, the point God is making is exactly the same point as Paul is making in Romans 9. Jacob and Esau have the same claim on God's choosing which is absolutely no claim at all. Nothing. There's nothing in them. By the way, Jacob and Esau, they're such a great example because neither one of them are nice people. Right? You can't just look at Jacob and say, that Jacob's a fine fellow. No wonder God picked him. No, he's a deceiver. He's greedy. He's, he's a mama's boy. Everything about him would say, God, you ain't going to choose him, but God did. That's why he's such a great example. 
See, he chose Jacob unconditionally. That is the meaning of Jacob I loved. God just chose to do it based on something that's inside of him, in his purposes. Nothing, it had nothing at all to do with Jacob. Now, I want to talk a little bit when I get to the Scripture. I need to make sure, I, because this Scripture really bothers people. So I want to try to explain it to you a little bit if I can. I want to talk about love versus hate. And this is, a, this is something that we make a big mistake on, and we cannot make this mistake. Love in the Bible is not about emotions or affections. It's about action. That's why the Bible, God can say, love your enemies. He does not expect you to have a mushy feeling about your enemies, people that abuse you, people that persecute you, people that use you. He doesn't expect you to just conjure up some... It's not about that. Love is about action. It's about acting for their benefit. Even when they're your, they're your enemies, act for their benefit. What, what would be best for them? Do that. You don't have to feel it. Are you with me? It's not about... By, by the way, we said it a, a couple weeks ago. All this mushy love, we all know it kind of fades away, right? And what gets replaced is this steadfast just thing inside of you that says, I'm going to act for their benefit. That's love. See, don't, look, don't, don't ever think that God looked in the womb and He says, boy, I, I really got an affection for Jacob, but I, me and that Esau, we're just not bonding. It's, it's got nothing to do with that at all. See, by the way, as I said, they're both going to become sinners, Jacob just as much as Esau. But in spite of the fact that God knows that Jacob's not going to be a nice guy, in spite of the fact that God knows Jacob is going to be a sinner, while he's still in the womb, God says, I choose to love him. I choose to act on his benefit. By the way, Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, he died for us. That's love. Even when we're his enemies, in, even when we're, we're, he knows we're going to hate him, even that, he goes ahead and says, I love you. I'm going to act on for your benefit. That's love. So when he says, I have loved Jacob, that's all he's saying is, I choose to act on Jacob's benefit. That's what love is. But now the other side of the coin is a lot harder. But Esau, I have hated. Let's go back. I'm going to read that whole passage, verses 2 through 5, because I want you to see the whole thing. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, well, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I'll tear it down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. Listen, hate is just like love. It's not an emotion. That's not what God is talking about at all. It's about actions. You see, God's hate for Esau is about acting against him, not on his behalf. Again, it's not an emotional feeling. God's like, I really hate that guy. I'm just going to... No, it's not that at all. You see, Esau as an individual and Edom as a nation are wicked and, and sinful, and God hates what? Sin. But unlike Jacob, God chooses to judge Esau and Edom for their sin. Jacob I love. Even though he's a sinner, I'm going to act on his behalf. Esau I hated. Even though he's a sinner, I'm going I'm to judge him. 
That's the choice. One, I've chose to act on their behalf. The other, I have chose to judge. Now, that's important because you can't ever look at Esau and boy and say, poor old Esau, he was so innocent. He wasn't innocent. He was a sinner. He was wicked. And as he acted in sin and he acted in his wickedness, he was held accountable for that sin. He deserved the judgment of God. Look at it this way. You hear this all the time. Esau got what he deserved. Jacob got what he didn't deserve. Right? Esau got exactly what he deserved. He got payment for his sin. Jacob is a sinner. He got what he didn't deserve, which was the love of God. God acted on his behalf. Now, I want to close here. i got ten minutes. I want to make sure... As we, because some of this, some of you have heard this before. Some of you, some of the stuff I'm talking about, some of you ain't never heard. And right now, and, and by the way, some of you will walk out of here and this will just go one ear and right out the other and you'll never think about it. Some of you, it will rock your world. Like it rocked mine. It will rock your world. Before, so we're not done. We'll come back to this next week. We've got some more to talk. Paul's got a lot more to say, by the way. We've only made it up into a few verses. He's got a lot more to say about this. But before we go, I want to make this. I want to say this. I want to make sure with what I've said today that you don't jump to any unwarranted conclusions or unbiblical conclusions, okay? A lot of people, a lot of people struggle with this. When, you, when we say that God chose, and He chose us, nothing because of us. He just chose for His own purposes. A lot of people say, well, how, that, you know, I, I, they really struggle with that because they feel like that does away with human responsibility, well, why are we preaching to people? Why are we... By the way, the same Paul who wrote this, when the Philippian jailer says, what must I do to be saved? What did Paul say? Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Paul didn't say, oh, don't worry about it, son. If you're chosen, you ain't got to do nothing. No, he said, repent and believe. You see, the same writer Paul who teaches this is the same writer Paul who teaches that we must choose God. See, Romans 9 does not... Con- contradict at all the truth that Jacob and and Esau and you and I make choices in this life and our choices matter. If Jacob is going to be saved, he will be saved by faith, for there is no other way, yes? If Esau is condemned, he will be condemned because of unbelief. The Bible is clear about that. Our final judgment will accord with the way we respond to the gospel in this life. If we choose to believe the gospel and put our faith in Jesus Christ, welcome to, welcome to the elect. You are chosen. If you choose not to believe, if you choose not to put your faith and trust in, 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 in Jesus Christ, you are not one of the elect. At the end of the day, our final entry into heaven or hell is not unconditional. To be saved, we must choose to believe. And to be lost, we must have chosen not to believe. That's the way it works. No one will ever be able to stand on the precipice of hell and say, I don't deserve this. Nobody will ever be able to say that. Now, I will tell you this. A lot of us will stand on the precipice of heaven and say, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve this. I don't deserve this. But He chose me. He died for me. He loved me. But I don't deserve this. Listen, just so, I'm, just so we're clear, Romans 2, 7, and 8. By the way, same book, same letter, same writer, same Paul says this. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. 
But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Listen, do you want to go to heaven? Do you want to be one of the elect? Do you want to be chosen? Then seek for honor and glory and immortality. Put your faith in Jesus Christ and welcome to heaven. But for those who are not, who, who are self-seeking, seek their own, obey the untruth, obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Paul is saying what you do matters. What you do matters. In other words, God's, don't ever put that aside and think, well, you know, I don't, no, it matters. God's right to choose does not contradict the necessity of faith for salvation, and it does not contradict the necessity of unbelief for damnation. It does not contradict that at all. What God's right to choose some and not others does is this. It completely knocks out human works from underneath salvation. Completely knocks it out and says it's all about the sovereignty of God. That's what this teaching does. It just replaces human works with the unshakable purposes of, of God. By the way, th- that's exactly what Paul is saying. In 1 Corinthians one twenty nine. Paul says God chose the foolish. God chose the weak. God chose things that are not. Why did he do that? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You stand on the precipice of heaven. Every one of us will say, there was nothing in me that got me here. Nothing. It was all about you. And of course, in Romans 9, 11, that's what Paul is saying again. Why did God choose those boys in the womb? Why does God choose us? So that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works. It's got nothing to do with that. It's because of Him who calls. It's in all the purposes of God are within Himself. By the way, we'll talk about God does have things that influence His choices. But it's, but it's completely contained within Him. There's nothing outside of Him that makes Him choose that person or that person or this person. It's all inside of Him. We'll talk about that next week. Let me close with this. How God can choose some and not others and not undermine our accountability, I do not get it. Right? See, as human beings, it's either black or white. It's either wet or dry. It's either light or dark. But it can't be both. It can't be black and white. It can't be wet and dry. It can't be light and dark. So when we get to this point, and it says God is sovereign to choose those who are being saved, but on the other hand, you're responsible to choose God, how can that be? I got no clue. I got absolutely no clue. But what I can tell you is the Bible teaches both. The Bible teaches both. God said this, My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. In fact, as as high as heaven is above the earth, that's how much greater and higher my ways and my thoughts are than yours. Don't try to put God in a box and say, He's got to do things within my reasoning and within my logic. God says, "Don't, don't go there. I can do things you never dreamed possible. So I believe with all my heart. And we'll, by the way, next week I'll give you lots of... We'll do two things next week. I'll come back and show you what, the others, what other people think about Romans 9. They said, no, it doesn't teach that at all. It's teaching something else. So I'll show you that, exactly what they think. And then we'll go look at some scriptures and we'll talk about the purposes of God and what's behind His choices. But as we close today, as I said, I believe the Scripture teaches both. I will not deny one or the other. 
I will not deny one or the other. I, I just cannot do that because the Scripture is too clear. Next week, we will come back and we will continue again in part three of God Chooses. Uh, based off Genesis 25 and Romans 9. Let's pray.